The following is a Feltnout production. To find out more, visit feltnout.co.uk. Ladies, gentlemen, non-binary friends, welcome back to episode two, finally, of Time Travel. Uh, uh, we we have been struggling to get some episodes recorded over the past month. We've had a few uh, personal issues pop up here and there. I'm sure you're aware of the difficulties of getting uh, various people in the same location. Um, um, I, my name, if you're listening for the first time, is Raoul Coley, a.k.a. the Newcastle Brown Mill. Uh, very interested in local history here in the northeast of England. I'm here with my co-host... Um, Mike Milligan, I am the figure of fun and uh, kind of Raji Gadji overlord figure. Uh, does that sound wrong? That's D Day, isn't Raji it? Gadji overlord figure. You I sound know, like yeah, Jimmy I, Savile. I do have like. <laughs> <laughs> now then, now then. Uh, is this appropriate? Uh, I do have ADHD and I've just eaten three high sugar bars as well to get me through the afternoon because I'm not like uh, Raoul Young and full of vim and vigour. Uh, I'm, I'm... It really sounded like Jimmy Savile. Now. <laughs> Is this how we wanted to start the programme, Raoul? <laughs> Let's get the paedophiles in before... It's just... Oh. Uh, uh, hey, big part of history, that. Big, big part of history, ever present, since the Spartans. Nonetheless, that's not what we're here to talk about. <laughs> uh, you'll be happy to know if... if, if you, because people have been messaging me on, on Twitter and on, on other socials asking when the next episode's going to come out. Uh, and so I apologise about the lateness in, in, in recording these and getting them out to you. As I say, we've had some personal issues. Nobody messaged Nobody, my... nobody got in touch with me, you no, cheeky get. Yeah, well, you know, I've got the social media and nobody uses carrier pigeon anymore, Mike. So, you know, they going to be asking me when the next episode is out. Maybe a couple, <laughs> couple of arrows, burning arrows. Hey, we're living through history now because uh, those, those, those first class stamps would have had King Charles on instead of Queen Elizabeth, eh? Mine had little Christmas creatures. Little Christmas creatures. Actually, my mum runs a post office. They've got everything there. They've got cricketers, <laughs> the Mandalorian characters. Honestly, you can get, you can get interesting stamp collections nowadays, but we're not... Here to talk about stamp collections. Um, <laughs> we're here to talk about Northeast history, uh, uh, and the particular thing we're going to focus on uh, historically today is 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 the Northeast in World War One. Before we're going to get onto that, we just want to also quickly you know, talk about the fact that hey, today is what was Thursday, the twenty third of February, uh, 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 and and we could be four days away from living through Tyneside history. I am wearing a, a Northeast. Newcastle United sweater over a Newcastle United jersey, a replica over an original one. My mum's post office is covered in my old shirts. People have been coming in after uh, hundreds of pounds to buy the um, buy the shirts. I've got me ticket. My brother offered us way over the odds to buy me ticket. Uh, what do you reckon, Mike? Do you think we'll get it? Um, right, it's heart and head here, sir. Uh, I'm still getting therapy for uh, the Charity Shield in uh, 1996 when we first signed Shearer and that was my new and we came out to Wembley the old Wembley and then God cried the whole heavens opened I remember just walking just streaming with water and all the my new fans and then kind of Icelandic and Cockney accents just ripping it out of us (laughs) it was awful so I'm I'm hoping that uh, we'll come out better but how Newcastle to have your fourth choice goalkeeper who hasn't been in goal since PE in the 90s. <laughs> <laughs> 
with those with his inhaler and his note off the PA. Two things on that. Is I find it so interesting because in 1999, I was six when we lost to Man United in uh, their treble winning season. Uh, two funny things. I didn't think we could lose. I just remember feeling, you know, magpie madness, magpie mania, cup fever up here. The shop's being done up. I had face paint on, had a black and white afro, a black and white shirt. I just didn't actually think we could lose. No I thought changes, it was I remember. Gonna take it home. Well, he's 74 with the Scousers. I remember uh, watching on Look North, black and white. Um, I, rem- I remember <laughs> the Newcastle fans went a lot more difficult back in the olden days. Newcastle fans down in, in the smoke. And this bloke, he had like the uh, 70s kind of uh, Bowie-esque haircut, but he like dyed it black and white rather than whatever colours Bowie. So it's like his Geordie Bowie standing there, right? Uh, the blue star man. Wait, anyway, uh, get off. Um, and I remember, the, look, sir, who's that? Uh, because all the, all the guys talk like this. Uh, so who's going to win, sir? Who? We're going to win one! And uh, uh, who, are you sure? We're, yeah. Obviously, I, that guy's probably dead now. Um yeah, I saw a cryogenically frozen Newcastle fan in '96. Uh, <laughs> There's no seriously on the tube. This bloke wearing the short trousers and the jeans and the scarf around his wrist uh, from like 1972. Have you um, ever have you ever heard that clip from like the 1900s of like an Arsenal fan and a Newcastle fan? Like the early nine, like 1900 to 1910, somewhere about are you that period. you mocking my age again? Well, it, like heard it live. Yeah, right? you heard it live. You must have had the the the, the, the gram radio back in the day. Hello. Uh, you, you told me one time, Mike, that when the first time you heard War of the Worlds, you thought it was legit. You went into hiding under no, your that desk. Was, that's very good. That was H.G. Wells. In 1930, H.G. Wells. H.G. Wells, I think that. Mike, I went into hiding when I saw Tom Cruise's version as well, just because it was crazy. <laughs> oh, I thought it was all right, you know, but I would have had it on DVD. But nonetheless, um, it's a really funny argument between, you know, two people are very local and very, you know, nowadays it's not quite that. I travel to London all the time. You guys do as well. Londoners travel up here for work. We're a lot more interconnected and that's good in many ways. But it's really just like two uh, thick accents are, well, I'll tell you, the Arsenal beat you. Well, no, what's Jordy's right over you? And it's absolutely beautiful. And um, ahead of the cup final, Mebs, give a listen to that. Uh, just Google it. The 1900s. Uh, Arsenal did, I think, take the win, if I recall correctly, but I, I, I don't recall correctly because I was there. I was there in a past life in a Hindu capacity. Well, I didn't see it, but, before, but I wasn't so there. <laughs> Uh, I read about it, I listened to it, but I, did, I wasn't there then. My father was talking about the, uh, when they won the three uh, uh, FA Cups in the 50s, uh, watching the bus go around the town and that. But I remember um, the last time Newcastle, Newcastle were anything of note or merit was um, in 1969. Was it 69 First Cup? Yes, First Cup. Uh, Bob Monker was the... the... Well, my father, how jet set, right? My father and my uncle, who was a comedian. So just quickly, was it Bob Monker who was captain and Joe Harvey who was who was, who was coach? Am I right in thinking that? Yeah, or? yeah. yeah. Maybe I was there. <laughs> well, they, they saw them play in Holland um, and uh, my father flew out to Amsterdam with my uncle and uh, how jet set set. He brought his little, little hat back, little... I, anyway, that's no interest at all to the audience, but I do, <laughs> I do remember. I'm uh, sure people would be. My, if my grandma, who doesn't speak any English, is interested in Newcastle United just because of the effect it has on the mood of this city, I'm sure our viewers who are into their northeast history probably don't mind a quick, cheeky chat about the tune and about how we might be living through history the rest of our lives. You know, we're going to be there at Wembley probably a lot, probably up there challenging, but... We're here to talk about the past, not the present. So let's get on to it. Let's Today, get on with it. Right. It's World War One. Now, 
A lot of the information I have about this, I've picked up from the book The Northumbrians, um, which if you are a fan of Northeast history, you have to read. Not least because I am in it. I'm there on page three. I'm quoted. sorry, mate, for not telling you. Uh, I read it uh, during the lockdown. Um, and then obviously I was in me, me kind of uh, mental bunker, so I didn't tell anybody anything about <laughs> out uh, until I recommended the book and Raul read it. And, and he said, I'm in it. Shock Which, horror. Well, I'm not shocked. Raul's just this sort of universal everyman <laughs> kind of person. If you didn't like Raul, there's something wrong with you. No, there's a lot of people who don't like us. I'm a good reason. But <laughs> one of the funniest things I read about World War One. this is the only thing I really know about World War One. so you're going to have to take the lead here, Mike. Um, the next episode, we'll be doing World War Two, where I do have a bit more to say, yeah. and I've done a bit more reading. But um, so apparently... What the Northumbrians will tell you is that historically we've always been a bit of a war frontier and it makes sense, you know. Yes. First it was the, the wall um, and then uh, you've got the, 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 the troops based here with the Roman Empire who've, who've merged with the local sort of Celtic tribes and they're fighting the Scottish and the Pict tribes out of the wall and then you've got like the Vikings and even the warrior monks of Oswald and so on and so forth who we'll talk about later and then you've got just the border reavers and the Scots who again we'll be doing episodes on as time comes by till about the 1600s, I think that was the last sort of proper well, I think siege. After the Act of Union, that, that kind of yes, after that, you need to calm things down. Um, but we've always been a warrior race. We have always been very martial. Now, to be fair, right? I, I am a, I'm a, I'm a big fan of being a Jordan from the northeast. But if you look, geography does. Uh, you know, frontiers, geography. People from the margins, no matter where you are in Europe, well, are always uh, harder. For example. Um, the the people from the, the Vikings had had a name as warriors because they came from a marginal, largely infertile land where they couldn't really grow crops, and that's what made them raji. Um, we came from this, you know, this uh, this border bad land where there was seldom. I remember, and particularly, I think there was a long period where we were attacked by the north and the south because you had the Picts on the north, and then you also had the the, the yeah. Vikings on the south, Danelaw. But even during William the Conqueror's time, like we talked about the Harren in the north yeah. in the first episode, and you had, even when the Harren North was happening from the south with William, I don't know if we mentioned it in the last episode, but you had Malcolm, one of the Malcolms, a Scottish king. But there's always and he, more than one fight in tune. He, <laughs> he came down from Scotland and tried to take yeah. advantage of that and take take well, over well, the, you would. I mean, the region. Rajis attract Rajis. You've been yourself and you've seen a fight and there's people who aren't even involved. Just <laughs> and I think historically, that was the thing that apparently there was, um, the, before the Act of Union, there'd never been a period of more than 50 years. Where there hadn't been some sort of uprising, and, and, and this is one thing I found astounding because the similarities that have surprised me that I picked up from the Northumbrians is actually there's huge similarities between where I was born, where I was raised, the northeast of England, and where all my heritage comes from, the Punjab, because the Punjab is a war frontier region. Absolutely. Between Indians, Pakistanis, and before then the Ottomans well, and the Persians, know, and in it, I mean, look at the military history of. Um, you know the, the 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 army in India and the you know the British Army regiments. They actually had a hierarchy of which races and castes were the most martial. And again, it was the same happened in England, right? The most ragy regiments are the Scots and the Northumberland border regiments. And in India, it was the guys from the north on the border. Who were That's why, like, there's yeah, a big yeah. difference between we always talk about, and the, it's interesting that there's a north-south divide in India as well. Yeah, there's absolutely. the we Punjabis we see ourselves as warriors, as commoners, as farmers, as just average folk, and the Gujaratis. 
The South Indians, uh, where Rishi Sunak is from, notably enough, has his pretty Patel, are the, are the wealthy ones, the money oh, makers, the, like the politicians. Yes, we are literally. I'll tell you a very funny story. It's going to crack you up, and I swear <laughs> right, to God it's okay. true, right? No, it's phenomenal. This. I, I thought the universe was having a laugh, taking the mick out of us. I thought Loki, the prankster god, was having me on, right? When I was in India doing a 10 day tour, I, uh, I went to this mall to try and get some food, right? Uh, and the next day, like, there's bars on the top of the mall. And, you know, I didn't find it easy meeting people to go for a drink. That culture doesn't really exist in India, or at least where I was staying, in the way that it does here. And so when there was this, I got invited to this bar. I said, why not? I went up this bar. It was a bit rough. It was a bit rough around the edges. I had a, I had a beer, and I thought, you know what, best call it. Tonight. And I go, and I'm in the taxi with the promoter the next day at the gig. And I explained the whole situation. I went to this, 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 this bar, and he goes, oh... Oh, you're very lucky. Uh, there's a lot of trouble there because there's a lot of Rajis there. Thick Indian accents. Oh, there's a lot of trouble there because a lot of Rajis there. I'm like, what? What do you mean Rajis? And he's like, you know, thick, uneducated, violent, delinquent yob types. And I'm like, why do you call them Rajis? Think it is there some sort oh, of similarity yeah, yeah, here? Yeah, he goes, yeah, yeah. because they tend to be from Rajasthan. And oh, <laughs> I was like, wow. wow. But Northern Indians, Punjabi Indians, tend to be known as a bit more like similar to extroverted, loud, yeah. bit less educated, bit le- bit bit more rougher, ready, bit more rough and tumble, and that's what I find interesting. Bringing it to World War One because uh, the two things I do know, Mike. This might be World War Two, but I'm pretty sure it's World One. There was apparently because the regiments, like they all, as you say, we we we. we in, in the UK, we scaled the regiments by sort of casting class. And the yeah, Scots yeah. and the Georgians were hard. And there was a regiment apparently called the Gateshead. It was known, like, amongst... The Gateshead Gurgis. The well, Gateshead like, that, that, that was a nickname for the um, the DLI, the Durham Light Infantry, um, all the Northumberland Fusiliers, Northumberland Fusiliers, both local regiments. Um, and again, this was in, 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 in our, the book that we love, Dan's book that we love to quote. But I, I just I seen it, it and I just cracked up. Yeah. Do you know what well, I mean? They were called the, the, what was called the Gates of Gurkhas because they tended to be um, men of short and stocky Stocky build. nature, yeah. yeah. And again, and, was Punjabi short and stocky yeah. as well? Well, I was also reading that, I mean, this isn't the Second World War, but hey, we're both a couple of Rajis, so we'll see <laughs> what we want. Um, is that I was reading an Australian um, story about the siege of Tobruk in World War Two, which we are talking about World War One today, um, and the Australians had a, a massive disdain for what they call the usual kind of you know up their own hole palm tagged with red tape and stuff. But there was one regiment the Australians found like spiritually and culturally very similar, and it was Northumberland Fusiliers, yes, so it was the, the yes, machine gun yes. company of the Fusiliers were with the Aussies in uh, Tobruk and um, one of the Aussie guys described them he said they were these short hard little men covered in tattoos hard as nails irreverent but um, you know just glad they had our back just absolute rock hard dwarfs really like the dwarfs in Lord of the Rings <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know yeah, what I mean yeah. just absolutely solid yeah. love a scrap quite short now this I found very funny because apparently we had the highest rate of sign-up when World War One broke out. And apparently for, like, near enough every war, well, we had, like, the highest rates of sign-ups. It. But, like, roller coasters for signing up for war. This completely blew my mind. I did not know this was a thing, but for signing up for war, like roller coasters, there's a hype requirement. And so one guy, apparently, he walked every... Like, this is in the North, and I may be embellishing it a little bit, but this is roughly what happened. Apparently walked to... I'm not sure if he walked to every uh, station in Newcastle. He told the nearest station was in yeah. Liverpool. Um, and so he either walked to every station in Newcastle and was rejected and then walked as far away to Liverpool at one 
or he just walked to Liverpool for reasons I can't quite remember, as I opposed to going to Lowell in the Northeast. Yeah, yeah. And then he got there and they said, sorry, mate, you're, you're too short. You can't join the military. So what he did was he offered to fight anyone in the room. Yes. <laughs> to prove oh, it was yes. hard enough to be in the military. And that's How probably the most jordy thing. I'll hear you all on. I'll tell you a story. I'll, do you want your gun? I'll hear you. Yee, yee, yee. I'll have well, yous. Do you know what they actually did? They, they, um, it wasn't just from the northeast, but there was obviously a lot of malnourishment in the Victorian slums. And what they did was um, there was a lot of... Sh- now, this is where the difference was. The, they formed things called Bantam, like, you know, the fighting cock, they formed Bantam battalions. And I read this in Martin Middles, I think Martin Middles' book, First Day on the Somme, very good book. And what they found was that height isn't, you know, by itself, you just can't form a battalion on height because all these hard little miners from the northeast might have been under five foot two or five foot three, but you could chop wood on their faces. They were mental, right? Mm-hmm. They were super. Then you got the malnourished um, kind of... Can't say, you know, of people of, sm- of um, kind of minimal height, less height from the slums of Birmingham, who weren't particularly hardy, like the miners. They weren't used to physical work. They were, and they put these battalions together, and they, they found that the, um, you know, just the height alone wasn't a good indicator. Yeah. But the ones who made the grade, these hard little miners and little jocks and all that, um, these banter battalions, um, very, very effective. Very effective until they were wiped and out. And again, not to draw the parallel to dwarves too much in Lord of the Rings, but like it is, they are short and stuffy because they would have been in mines. I don't know you could say dwarf. I don't know if that no, was... No, Lord of the Rings dwarfs, you know what I mean? Not dwarfs in... See, because I'm from the olden days and I'm now terrified because my kids keep us right, Dad, you can't say that. Lord of the Rings dwarfs, you know what I mean? But I think you can call actual dwarves dwarves. Anyway, moving away from this, but <laughs> just talking about Lord of the Rings dwarves, okay? That's the yeah, important thing here. Raul, but um, they live in mines, don't they? And like, our Geordies are probably northeasterners, short and stocky because they will historically well, have done well, a lot of mining. At, um, Game of Thrones as well, I mean, the, 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 the Night's Watch are all just Geordies, aren't they? That's just the room. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, it's, it's nuts when I read the Northumbrians and I pick up these little things like the watchers on the wall and I'm like, yeah. that's literally... George R. R. Martin just carbon copied this whole yeah. thing and made it ice yeah. from from the northeast. And he, he said he, what he walked, he did a tour of the northeast. And I get I get to an interesting moment with this that really tickles me, right? But you know, he stood on Hadrian's Wall and he looked out and he just imagined what you would see if you're a Roman sentry here. What would you imagine? And it, it makes me think. It really just makes me think of uh, Gavin Webster's. <laughs> you're a yeah. Roman sentry and you yeah. stood here. What would come at you? Ah! Ginger's blocks in skirts. <laughs> <Yeah>. Nah. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, but you know, and imagine like you could, you could like, especially if you know. I always think of like take it back to Rome itself and when how what would you have thought when Hannibal came over with them and ele- elephants? If you're a Roman sentry and you'd never seen an elephant before and he just leads an yeah, army yeah, of yeah. elephants over into your city, you'd just be like, oh, it would be like seeing a dragon. Well, do you know he, what I mean? You wouldn't see it. I'm the other thing because uh, I mean the reti- reticular activating system and apparently, if something is too mind blowing. I might say this with a cup on Sunday. If something is too far-fetched and mind-blowing, you actually, you, you've got the thing called the reticular activating system, which blots it out. So this is, again, now to do with this, but bollocks, I'll say it. When the, um, the black ships, the Spanish black ships, arrived in uh, South America, reportedly some of the um, natives couldn't see them because they were so wow. far out of their... Comprehension, um, comprehension, like one, imagination. They had that's to get inc- one of the shame and one of a shot. Oh my god, that's so interesting. That's so interesting. 
That's so, so interesting. Doing that on the, yeah, because I think that is that it genuinely is you like you know it, yeah. when you look at all these historical sort of talks of like uh, dragons and the way like and there's all way like dragons and Satan's are dragons and angels and sky and demons yeah. in the sky. Very quickly, well, not very quickly, but over time became aliens and UFOs and this, that, and but the maybe other. Maybe so, there, there is something the between our imagination and consciousness and what we actually see in front of us. But again, Anyways, uh, should we get very, yeah, yeah, <laughs> mushroom reviews. Let's get back to World One. But the Game of Thrones thing, just quickly, yeah. um, I have a theory that did a little tour of the Northeast, did George R.R. Martin, and, and, and you know, Craster's Village in Game of Thrones, uh, Craster, well, Craster Village here, very similar is Craster Village, if you look at a picture of it, to the artwork for Craster's house in Game of Thrones, where that inbred man, like, basically, like, what does he do? He, like, sort of, um, he keeps his daughters that he has with his other daughters and then keeps them as extra wife daughters and then gives his sons to the White Walkers. That's not like Craster. I mean, it should be full of middle-class people. Well, I don't know. I think when he came here in the 60s, 70s, transport wasn't that well. I think he must have met a dodgy, dodgy family who put him up in their B&B where this man had, yep, all these... Because if you look at the pictures, they are really similar. His artwork for his Craster and our Craster, it's alarmingly similar. It's still happening now. I can't mention the name, but my uncle... We will get on the first world war, but my uncle, who was a comedian in the 70s and 80s, Eighties, I, I once I used to roadie for him, uh, and we went to a village deep in the uh, a day village, one that should have died, uh, deep in the ex Durham coalfield, and seriously, um, somebody in the family knew somebody in the family. They, um, in, in, oh, ding 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 ding, webbed hands the whole deal. Um, yeah, frightening. The big word I meant to is histiog. Oh, I've balls it up now. History. I can't. I've, I've said it. Is all. it historiography or historiography? Historiography. Historiography. historiography there we go. Which is essentially what I'm uh, really into is the history of the historical study. So the way we look at history is massively influenced by the historical paradigm of the time like it was written looking about. at Game of Thrones to sort of actually judge how people felt on the wall, that sort of thing. No, but a little bit different, Raoul. Um, a little bit different. Uh, so, for example, my favourite one is the First World War. Our uh, ask any like young people like yourself now about the First World War, and essentially they look at it through the lens of essentially uh, lions led by donkeys, Blackadder, oh what a lovely war, uh, a gigantic um, you know criminal mistake. Now, don't get me wrong, it doesn't belittle the um, the suffering and the and the stuff that went on, but that's factually looking back, not actually the truth. And we've had a lot of um, not revisionists, because the ones who were the revisionists were the ones who looked at it in the 60s and when, when there was a general uh, feeling of rebellion against authority, that's where it came from. And because people were living in comfortable lives in the 60s, uh, they felt more able to challenge because um, I suppose people in the 1930s are too busy living in poverty. And most of the veterans, if you'd asked them in the 30s, do you think the Great War was a waste of time? Most of them would have said no. They actually valued their military service. But what began, when things began to go against it was um, when the land fit for, probably the late 20s, the land fit for heroes uh, was found out to be a hollow lie. That didn't actually work out. And then you got people like... What's the land fit for heroes? What does that even mean? When they, um, when the, uh, all the service people came home after the First World War, um, well, actually, the First World War didn't end in 2000, uh, sorry, didn't end in 1980. And if you look at some of the war memorials, they have... Um, 
people who died in two, uh, two books started again, you know, people who died in 1990. And what you don't realise was, for at least a year, perhaps two, there was the Russian Civil War going on, and both our local regiments were fighting in Russia until 1921. People don't realise that. That's, you know, never an apologist um, for, for the aggression of Putin, but the, the, the Russians have quite long memories and they do remember the interventions. But by the way, I'm utterly pro So why Ukraine. why did we intervene in Russia? Why were we sending it was like to, um, it was to crush UK, New Geordie regiments over uh, there? It was to crush the um the Red Revolution, essentially. To uh, try the, and crush the, the Bolshevik yeah, Revolution, yeah, which failed Bolshevik. in the end, I suppose. Yeah, it did fail, but uh, the Japanese came in from the Far East. The Japanese were involved. The Americans sent um an expeditionary force. The British sent an expeditionary force. Um, it was uh, there were oh, there was a hodgepodge of fighting. The Poles were fighting. It was a big mess, a big fight. Again, uh, like the Hobbit, the Battle of the Five Armies. Yeah, and um, yeah. So I mean, we were we were losing guys. But anyway, when they came back, the kind of covenant, the promise from the government was, you're going to have a land fit for heroes. And by the end of the 1920s, with the depression. Um, that started feeling like a very hollow promise. So then, some of the uh, the questioning of what had gone on, some of the kind of um, almost because remember it was a time of obedience. It was a time where people didn't, on the whole, question authority. Um, You're just coming out the Victorian times, really, aren't yeah, you? you? So are. it's sort yeah, of like yeah, very yeah, much still a very take. Uh, um, and I'm gonna we'll go with this in the next episode. But the, the the feeling, if you'd asked a great war veteran in the twenties, early twenties, they'd have been very proud of what they'd done, and they would have seen it as very worthwhile on the whole, the majority. Um, and I'm going to be looking at the in the next episode this um, this new perception, um, which looks at the sixties and goes, you know, well, how comes that's so different to what happened now? Because you know the the perception now, uh, you know, through the lens of the sixties, it, it was one giant slaughter the corpulent generals lived in no man's land the men were like sheep that were just they just lived in filth and slime for years and then we had to run across in the machine that wasn't actually the case and by the end uh, of uh, 1918 the british army were the most adept and skilled in theater and we'd actually um perfected the first combined arms operation using radio, using air power, using tanks, using infantry, using engineers. Um, and it was like one of the first prototype modern effect, you know, effect. People don't actually remember that, that the British Army was on this massive learning curve and we were the most effective and modern army on the planet by 1918. And this always gets, uh, actually in the 100 Days campaign, they basically shoveled the Germans up after, after four years of war. Massive victory, crushing defeat on the Germans, but we dropped the ball. We let the Germans march back into Germany with their arms, and it allowed the um, later on with the Nazis this this false um, narrative of the backstab, where they were the German army was never defeated in the field, which it was, but they made the mistake of letting them march back into Germany um, in one piece. And I remember so I thought the whole thing was there was like a treaty, and then that treaty was like, okay, you can't fund your military anymore. Oh yeah, that and then was the Hitler just did it behind the, their back. Yeah, but, but the thing is, the problem is they allowed uh, like this caveat where they marched back under arms, and when they marched back into Germany, they didn't look like a defeated army, which they were. Um, and only some parts of the Rhineland was the only part of Germany occupied, unlike, uh, unlike the end of World War Two, where they were told the Nazis were crushed and Germany was wholly occupied. Um, I remember a quote from a French officer watching the Germans march back at the Germany saying, we've made a mistake here. He said, they think they're not defeated. They'll be back in 20 years. Now, a French officer said that, recorded in 1918. 
um, I've lost my thread, but I, it, you know, the next episode I want to have a look if it's okay. It, um, just testing some of the myths that we think about the First World War now. But how this tie into like you know the Northumberland Fusiliers oh, and the Northeast? We were in absolutely. Russia. We're trying to take down the Bolshevik Revolution. We don't quite do it. Where some of the well, toughest in regiments the, in yeah, the war in both war. wars. We'll talk a bit more in World War Two about uh, yeah. contributions there. But uh, in terms of contributions in World War One, I, I mean, one thing I live in Chillingham Road uh, on that area. So one thing I always find very interesting is. Um, when I was younger, and my dad's shop's not far from there, so I've seen it a lot, the pub, the Northumberland Hussar. Mm-hmm. I was always under the impression Hussar was like a Muslim term or a term of like, I don't know, some sort of Arab horses. I was like, what the hell is the Northumberland Hussar? What does that is mean it, to me? Yeah, yeah. Hussar was, you can go back to Napoleonic times, um, was a type of cavalry, light cavalry. Um, Which probably was based on like, the, you know, the, 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 the nomadic cavalry tribes. Hungarian, of, and I think the Hungarians will have probably lifted it from the Ottomans. Yes, yeah, 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 yeah. And, and sort of pre-Islamic Saudi Arabia, like yeah. those sorts of uh, yeah. cavalry tribes that were known to just be able to like, you know, like the Dothraki and Game of Thrones again, just stand on the back of their horses, yeah. shoot arrows. You could just, you never wanted to fight that army on horseback. But I found out the Northumberland Hussars was one of the most feared regiments in either World War One or World well, War II. Well, the Hussars, um, weirdly, um, I had a mate when I was in the army, they, they, they were... Um, the kind of modern antecedent which is gone now was the 15th, 19th uh, Cavalry Regiment. They were like the Geordie Cavalry. Um, and they've gone. Everything's just been amalgamated to death now, but they've gone. And um, if I get this right, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm waffling now. No, Thumbling Fusiliers, getting back onto it. Um, am I waffling? Have I gone off? Just keep talking. Don't dry up, Mick. Yeah. Sorry, I, I had a quick flashback to what Neil short time in the army with me, mate. Charlie, if you're out there, Charlie, good luck, you mate. Um, yeah, Is this when you just sat and did cocaine in your room wearing a helmet? <laughs> or oh, you no. genuinely in the army with no, a bro. Charlie? That, that, that was only 10 minutes ago, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I dried up there. Always happens with the over 50s. Anyway, um, should, we, should we knock it there then and do the next episode in a minute? Because I think we've kind of... Or do we just keep going? I think we just take this to about 40, 45. And, um, how, I mean, how much info have you got on World oh, War mental, I? Mate, it, it is we enough. can't fit everything in, do you know what I mean? No, but it, it's, what I want to talk, okay, what I want to talk about um, is the, the, just looking at this this myth, which mm-hmm. is... I mean, the, the Northeast, uh, we did raise... I mean, this was in... The, the book, the book, uh, but also I read about the Holy the, Bible of the, the Northeast, the, the, the yeah, Northumbrians. Yeah, I read about that a lot. Obviously, this is where he got the source from. Is that the Northumbrian fusiliers? Um, when the First World War started, essentially, um, Britain has always been uh, a sea power, mm-hmm. right? The the um, the British Army had essentially since World War Two, since the Napoleonic Wars, we'd never really had a standing army, and even in Napoleonic times, the British Army was essentially um, regulars regular soldiers and it was seen as a never seen as an honorable profession they were always seen as really you watch sharp haven't you they were always seen to be all these like rogues and vagabonds and um what's his name himself um wellington said himself you know that they, they, they might not you know might scare the enemy but you know they scare me um you know the the these kind of the the dregs really of society that joined the army and it was still seen in, in victorian times it was seen as um if you were the respectable working class when when they began to be like you know the industrial working class began to rise up and you know make the, the lower middle class, um, any Victorian boy joining the army was seen as kissing all chances of social 
advancement goodbye because it would be gambling, low company, drunkenness, just, you know, to be avoided. So when the First World War started, um, after the, the basically they sent the British, ex, British BAF, the British Expeditionary Force, was essentially a colonial police force. It, it, it had just been used for colonial policing. Uh, with a with a bit of um, you know the- because I know we do like I mean we're going to do an episode on emancipation in a few uh, in a couple of episodes time and, and about our contributions to the the civil rights movement and, and, and abolishing slavery which are huge but I do know that we because of the military connection we do have a huge presence in some pretty brutal mm. military colonialist wars like I know we were very very present in the Boer War well, well yeah of course but then there was the um- there's always been a, a kind of connection. The Northumberland Fusiliers were called the Fifth of Foot, the Fighting Fifth. And then in late Victorian times, if I um, find the, well, I don't know, the day, but late Victorian times, there was a, was it Cardwell? It was Victorian reforms, and so the numbered regiments suddenly became county regiments, which really nailed down uh, a geographical link to a regiment. And this was to have quite tragic consequences during the First World War. Um, when the, as I said, this this kind of gendarmerie, this colonial gendarmerie that the, the I'm sounding serious now, aren't I? That the um, the British Army had become wasn't enough. When they had the um, the first battles of 1940 and early 15, they were wiped out. The be you know, they, they were they were they were knackered, and they realised we're going to have to be like the Germans and the French and have conscription, which was seen as an evil to the you know no, no British mind needs to be pressed and conscripted but we did have like not necessarily conscription but we had like press gangs once upon a time am never, I right in thinking never to that number though I mean it okay might, yes it not to like not just if you accidentally serious, ended up yeah. like near a ship you might get yeah, pressed yeah, yeah, in the gang yeah, but, but you weren't getting conscripted by the government okay not, fair enough that makes sense they actually raise um, a citizen army so they did it quite quite cleverly um, there was a like a late Victorian sort of like you know I suppose not Facebook and all that, but what they loved doing was having clubs. They got a lot of identity uh, from sports clubs, business clubs, and what happened was, <clears throat> I think quite quite cleverly, um, let's have a quick drink, Kitchener, um, who was in charge of getting the uh, you know manpower together, uh, was so he the geezer on all the posters as well? That's Britain's needs Like you. the Uncle yeah, yeah. Sam of yeah, like yeah, yeah. Britain, essentially, was Britain, Kitchener. Yeah, your country needs you, Britain needs you. <coughs> they, they called up, um, they began to call up these volunteer citizens, and they were very cleverly, he said, those who join together will serve together. So you weren't going to For be... For a short while, at least. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you weren't going to be spread around the army. Um you and your pals, because that was again not to bring back the fantasy element, but that was what J.R. Tolkien almost pissed like yeah. Lord of the Rings on. He's like, "Oh, you and your friends were going on an adventure. That's what you were told, and then you know you'd get there and you'd see your friends' arm get blown off." Yeah, but well, the thing is, that was going to happen anyway. But the problem was, it was great for unit cohesion because these guys lived in the same streets, they went to the same pubs, probably went out with each other's sisters. You know, kind of they all knew each other. Right, but so then, you're not as bothered about somebody losing their arm if you shag your sister. Yeah, do you know exactly, what I mean? Exactly. <laughs> and the, um, well, this is when it got weird because um, I'll get into this later. But the, the, some of the like the first of July in 1916, that's when the Kitchener's army, these volunteers, and they had great names. Like in in um, you had uh, Newcastle, they had the Tyne Scottish. So you had 
supposedly Geordies of Scottish extraction, but something like one quarter of them had any Scottish ancestry. The rest were Geordie Rajis who fancied when they killed. Um, then you had the Tyneside Irish because there was a, uh, is it Diaspora? Is that the name I'm looking for? Yeah, the Diaspora, yeah, diaspora, yeah, yeah. yeah. The Interesting quick fact about the kilt though. Uh, I picked up the Northumbrians that the oldest tartan in the United, like in the British Isles, is in fact the Northumbrian tartan. So yeah, the kilt is a traditionally Scottish thing. The very first type of tartan was Northumbrian, not necessarily Scottish. Well, we, we, we will be coming out with more, more, more. I've, I've learned. I have learned. I have learned. <laughs> now, don't knock a middle-aged man off his track, man, Raoul. Sorry, we're, we're sorry, go on. Anyway, so the, um, you can imagine all these mad Geordies joining. And had a competition, who could, who could get the most people? So they ended up with two brigades of three battalions, which is a load of blokes. The tight, there was the 101st, 103rd Tyneside Irish Brigade. How many is two brigades of three battalions? Okay. What is that in numbers? Give okay. us give us numbers, because uh, I don't know what the hell the that Lord means. Mayor. I'm not a military man. Oh, God almighty. See, it's different because the brigade, they were he- infantry heavy. They were different to a modern brigade, so I'd have to look that up. But it was a lot of guys. Rough idea, like 10,000, 5,000, oh, well, 2,000. Well, uh, all together put about 20,000 guys in 20,000? Back then as well, that is, yeah, yeah. that's numbers, you but know what I mean? that might not have been those three brigades, uh, so I'd have to check on that. I mean, that's two Metro Radio Arenas, it, it, two fifths of St. It, James's Park. That's a, lot of, of, that's a lot of blokes up for a scrap. And they all, they all trained and uh, they were kitted out by the great and the good. And then the army took them on. So even though they called themselves a Tyneside Irish, like the first Tyneside Irish, then but the army took them under their wing and they became the 20th Battalion, Northumberland Fusiliers. Uh, like the fourth Tyneside Irish became the 23rd Battalion, Northumberland Fusiliers. And they met their baptism of fire on the Somme. No, because everybody knows the Somme. Yeah. Well, like if you don't, just a quick, well, that's why I give a quick run through. It, it, it burned at the um, British kind of um, social psyche. It was because it was Kitchener's army's first real blooding. Oi, and, and what so, a blooding it was. Well, it was, but the, 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 is, is this bloke um, who I was, I was, bloke I was reading, uh, Gordon Corrigan, this, this, this author who's revising the so, Civil War. For listeners that perhaps don't, I say everybody knows the sum, that's not true. You know, no. some people don't. So can I just give a quick run through? to what my sort of understanding of okay. the Somme was and why that's such a important thing in terms of these Northeast regiments and Kitchener's army getting its first real blood. And basically, it, it, it was a trench war. Um, and this is where, at least from my younger perspective, this idea that lions being led by donkeys is sort of comes from. For me, my first thinking of it, more than Blackadder, is yeah. the Somme. I believe it was General Douglas Haig, is that the correct name? Haig, yeah. And he was accused of just basically sending his troops into a genocide. He sent tens of thousands of men over the trenches into a battle that they were never going to win. And just, it was, well, from the South, it's a lot of Geordies, but the way I heard about in school, just Brits, all these young men just yeah. getting blown to bits. Well, there was, it was a tragedy. It was a I mean, huge it, it loss. Work. We lost loads of troops. One of the biggest Ab- embarrassments and absolutely. tragedies of World War One for the the British Army. It was the it was the darkest day for the British Army. I mean, they had sixty thousand casualties on the first of July. Yeah. wee! Twenty thousand dead. <sighs> yeah. And there's no way you can. Um, and this is back when it's like you know you World War One with the, 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 the yeah. there's no real international law, so it's mustard gas and everything in all these horrible ways that people are well, dying. Again, this oh. is, reading this this is exactly what I used to think. But reading uh, this guy, he made sure that uh, when he because he what what this he was a young lad he was, young, he, was, he was he was a young student in the sixties and what he couldn't get his head round um, he later joined the army as well is that all his professors who being in the First World War, what they told him and what they thought about the First World War was absolutely at odds with what he was 
hearing from the young historians and the lives led by Donkey's Brigade, and he just couldn't square anything. Well, well, they can't both be right. How could I guess they... for me, the evidence was sort of like the, the, the poets and the writers. Well, J.R. Well, yeah, Tolkien's a, a good example, as is uh, who was the one who Sassoon. does a Dulce Estacoramess? Well, there's Sassoon who did that one. Um, he died in the squirts in the, in the Greek island. Um, and, uh, and he talks about... Um, <laughs> yeah, so what's his name? This is going to uh, kill... Wilfred Owen. Owen that, yeah, 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 exactly. And he does this brutally... Like, I just remember reading it as a kid and thinking... It was such a brutal description of watching someone die uh, as a result of mustard gas. Well, I remember seeing a really good... Um, well, again, Gordon Corrigan said he, he, that's what he thought as a, as a, a young... Um, you know, student. That's, but when he actually looked at the figures, he actually went to the source of the 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 the, the, the defence. Do these like figures from from the time after the First World War? More British soldiers died in road accidents behind the lines than were killed by mustard gas. <whistles> so it's our perception. This is the historiography again. It was horrible, but it was not like every day you woke up to a mustard gas attack. And often it was quite ineffective. It blew back into the uh, the enemy lines. It, um, and as horrific as it was, it wasn't as widespread as we thought. Also, um, like the, I've, I've found all this out because again, I shared that I thought oh, it was hell, and you know, I'm not saying it was a, a picnic, but just looking at the facts, like um, oh, I was sorry, as long yeah, as you didn't crash yeah, your car, well, it was fine, mate. Of all the armies um, involved, and this is your Northumberland Fusiliers, they would only be in the line for seven days out of a whole month. So a whole month, they weren't just eye deep in hell all that time. They'd be in the line for seven days, only on the actual front trench for three days, and then they were back um, out of harm's way to, you know, um, refresh, recoup, okay, do some working parties, stuff like that. But they were out of harm's Apparently way. Apparently they got requested to do a lot time. of the digging of the trenches, because oh, naturally makes sense with the mines, doesn't it? To the point where they got yeah. quite annoyed that nobody else was getting asked, because <laughs> yeah. they were so efficient were at, at digging yeah. the trenches. Yeah, they, they also did the, um, they had the miners, also had the guys from London who dug the tube there because they actually had when the Northumberland fuse I, 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 I know my French is terrible but there's a French village that the Northumberland fusiliers the two brigades went to attack and there was a mine on either side so they sapped under the um, the French village and the people who did the digging weren't just Geordie miners they actually also used the navvies who dug the London tube right well uh, just a quick one on that because you can still see uh, I suppose parts of this history alive today if you go to an area in london called wood green where my friend used to live it's very interesting if you walk down that road there's there's lothian road there's like edinburgh road yeah like northumberland road and i was like something something's happened here hasn't it Do you know what i mean i was talking to him so oh, yeah, it was like where a lot of the all the rail workers from the the northeast all yeah. the engineers that moved here to dig the tube from the northeast in scotland uh, and you still see this particularly at the football club hanwell town fc also known as the London Geordies, who, uh, if you're going to Wembley again on Sunday, they're going to, I think they're sold out now, but they're going to have their entire uh, ground open for Newcastle fans to watch. They only realised the past couple of years and their Twitter got a lot of new followers as a result of it. Uh, they were just Hamwell Town FC, local London oh, the team. Black then, white. Do they, they play in black and white? Yes, and they looked into their history and they found out it was a bunch of Geordies who come down to build the rails and dig the tubes. Mm. And thus... Called themselves Hamilton FC back then in the early 1900s. Called themselves the 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 the, the, the London Geordies, uh, and they've recently just reconnected with their history and found a lot of toon support as a result of that. that that's that's mental. That's mental because the um the the well, do you know as well if you go back to um one of the big cemeteries uh, in France is called Tyne Cot because 
there was a French farmhouse where, where the cemetery is built that the Geordies, the Northumberland Fusiliers, saw it and said, hey, that looks like a Tyneside cottage. <laughs> so um, everyone knew that landmark was Tynecott. Oh, that's wondrous. That's wondrous. Um, I always find things interesting because when I went to Flandersfield on like a school trip, there's a lad I knew from Morpeth who I got on very well with. Well, I've not seen him in Youngs, but his name was John Harbottle. Mm. And um, when I was there, there was like a war hero. Something Harbottle, I forget his name now. A grenade got thrown into his camp or somebody dropped a grenade without the pin uh, and he dived on it and took the hit and obviously exploded. Oh, guts yeah. everywhere, limbs everywhere, but he saved the rest of his regiment and he was from the northeast. and I just thought to myself, might he have been... Because I think it's yeah, likely. Wouldn't that be a weird Probably story? a great. If, if Danny Dyer is related to the Queen, you know <laughs> yeah. what I mean? I think this guy could be related to my friend. I think he could be a great, great granduncle of him. From up here, where are they? Like, is it seven, whatever removed? Um, oh, seven degrees of separation. Right. Seven, so whatever removed. Yeah, you know what I mean? I'm from the old days. <coughs> Another thing, uh, the difference between the First and Second World War is that uh, because of this Pals Battalion malarkey, where there was, you know, you had the Tyneside Pals, Tyneside Commercials, all the people from Grey Street in the offices formed their own battalion, uh, Tyneside Commercials. So, obviously, when, even if it was 10% casualties, even, I don't mean it like callously like that, but any any casualties would be felt like a hammer blow because it was from the same streets, the same factory, the same company. Everyone knew everybody. Now, how about this for a fact, right? Um, who was the biggest butcher, would you say? Montgomery... Or General Haig? Right. So, I don't know too much about Montgomery, but I am under the impression... Well, he's, he's the guy who oversaw D-Day for the hour. Yes, yes, and I am under the impression also, though, that my granddad would not have been alive if it wasn't for him. I think... We'll probably get on this a bit more in World War Two, but I'm pretty sure my granddad was fighting in, 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 in sort of Turkey, Morocco, Italy. He was, he was based in the yeah. south. The point when he first told us some of the places he fought, I was like, who's side were you on, granddad? Oh. <laughs> Especially when he mentioned Italy, but nonetheless, he's definitely on our side. Anyway, point being, uh, only a swastika at my house, and that's because I'm a Hindu, not at his. Anyway, point being, point <laughs> being, um, mum told us that a ve- like he was there at a very famous battle in that sort of North African, European peninsula, where the regiment was going to be overrun and, and it was Montgomery who came to save the day with a bigger regiment and he, and he, and he basically rescued me granddad's regiment from the Germans. Now, this might not be fully correct. No, no, I'm getting it, it passed Monty down from my grandma not. who asked granddad John once upon a time. I've got adopted grandparents, by the way. We'll, we'll talk about that in the next episode because it, their experience is very crucial in World War II and I think they have a very yeah. interesting story for World War II. But if I'm looking at it from that perspective... I love my granddad, me. <laughs> I think he's a top bloke. Is so for around? me, he's not unfortunately passed oh, when I was 15 and then my grandma passed a few years ago as well. But we'll talk a bit more about them and their very interesting yeah, life story in the next episode. What I will say for now is that if, if uh, given that I'm under that impression, coming back to your question, it has to be Haig for me. I read about Haig being such a bastard well, and this, that and the other. Right and there. Montgomery for me, save me granddad. Right. Normandy, right? Um, Normandy, very the, the, the people. One of the kind of fallacies of D-Day, and again, um, Montgomery knew who he would send in. There was a 50th Infantry Division, uh, Infantry Division, uh, basically called the Tyne Tees Division, and Montgomery, when he was taken out of Italy, out of um, 
after you know winning in the in Isn't the it time tease just immediately makes me think it just like TV in the it 90s does, some yeah, comedy like, show with really brown shirts <laughs> yeah and you and David yeah. Craig yeah, that's yeah, what yeah. I think of when I think of time tease and deck in their uh, infant years yeah, <laughs> absolutely time tease well, television what institution from um, uh, so D-Day apparently people uh, just D-Day. blowing up on the beach they, so they put uh, the 50th Northumbrian Division by that time though they weren't all Geordies like the Hampshire's in there as well but he took them because of this kind of uh, martial you know, uh, reputation of little hard Geordies from Tobruk and stuff like that. But like saving Private Ryan, we don't get a mention in it. But um, the British, uh, but the the, the uh, sorry Montgomery gets slagged off uh, some of the characters in there. Is that when they landed? The biggest battle was wasn't DD itself. It was the two two month campaign after DD to try and break through the German lines. But Green Howard's Middlesbrough Regiment, so are staying in the northeast, right? The Green Howard's got into a big Barney with an SS division just after D-Day. It's quickly, any idea why they call the Green Howard's? Does that uh, relate to Middlesbrough? Do, or? Uh, yeah, yeah, no, it's new. It's there. It was, uh, they were often raised by aristocracy. and it was From a, Middlesbrough? Yeah, from North Yorkshire. Oh, North yeah, Yorkshire, okay. The farms so and donuts. Okay, but the right, Green Howard's, uh, different regiments when there were redcoats had different facings. And, um, had Again, like, redcoats, I just think of butlins. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Like, I'll be a red car. I'm doing Butlin soon, Skegness. Like, I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> I've been to Butlin, so we're like red coats. They were like the, uh, the more, more, more the ones of the, uh, the kind of Civil War. No, they weren't the Civil War red coats. I digress. Anyway, uh, they were the British, weren't they? When, you know, well, the, the red coats, the, that's what the Brits were known as. Because they had green facings on the uniforms and they were raised by like, mm-hmm, the Howard mm-hmm. family. Um, but the Green Howards were like the Borough Regiment. And they got a right um, into a big fight with the SS. Uh, just after D-Day and this author went to have a look because the the, the, the casualty rates in um, in Northern put this way as well the army was different because in World War One it was nearly all blokes on the ground infantry but by the time you got to World War Two, there was a massive um, kind of administrative and technical and logistical tale to fight modern warfare you need loads of logistics so the guys at the tip the infantry were much smaller in number but had most of the casualties so like uh, the Green Howards, right? So when they took this kicking off the SS, um, the guy researched the dead, and there was only like three or four. They'd lost, um, you know, a crazy amount. Uh, 250 casualties, 72 killed on this one day, the Green Howards. But hardly any of them were from Borough. By World War Two, they'd learned to spread the kind of people around. So even though they were a Borough regiment, they were from Ireland, they were from all parts of the UK, they were Scotsmen, there were even three Americans among the dead. What the hell three Americans were doing, fighting in a Middlesbrough regiment on D-Day, we'll never find out. You just, it's always the crack though, isn't it? Like, we travel like you never see, like, I think one of my favourite facts ever is to, to, there was like a Scottish bomb maker in like the siege of Constantinople when it turned to Istanbul and like in the documentary I was watching it apparently it's just like that, yeah, there's yeah. always a Scottish guy who can fuck around with fire <laughs> in the middle of every battle it'll be like between India and the Persians in like 2000 and somehow a Scot will have ended up there who can fuck around with well, fire well guess what there was actually um, a German general in the same world called Von Mackensen who had the Mackensen comes from his Scottish ancestry because there were so many um, kind of from the border region, mercenaries. Again, our Raji land, Scotland and the borderlands, the Reavers, they ended up fighting for, and I'm sure it's the same from your your region in India. I'm sure a load of the lads from Lee held something up and we're both meant to pretend we haven't seen it. Yeah, that is the <laughs> I was pretending. 
I was pretending. We're going to have to wrap this up. Um, just quickly on that. Like, yeah, again, I think that was really interesting with the border reavers. And, and then names, again, very similar to Game of Thrones names in terms of like your crowfoots and your... And yeah, and yeah, like hunter. I don't know, like lion foot. All these kind of weird yeah, names like that. Uh, <laughs> and then how they, yeah, how they ended up sort of as well becoming the similar sort of names in in the Carolinas, uh, which I'm sure we'll touch up on a, a different episode. Yeah. How the the Northumbrian sort of frontier zone ended up in the Carolinas and end up like sort of colonizing the Carolinas and the south of America, uh, the south of the United States of America, not the south of Latin America, um, because it was a very similar lifestyle. Um, but coming back to this, 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 this spread these borough regiments everywhere. Yeah, so in World War Two, the, the casualties were spread out. So um, that if a regiment had a bad day, it would be spread right amongst the whole population. So it wouldn't seem as, even though it was tragic. That's probably like, sensible, isn't it? You know what I mean? Yeah, you don't want from the same street. Yeah, exactly. Because then you have another heroine of the north or heroine of the Hampshire or whatever. If you just sent an entire lesson. city to. Yeah, well, they did learn their lesson. Yeah, I tell you oh, one thing, mind you. Not to be crude and sort of, you know, completely just ride over all this suffering, but uh, if that did happen, if they'd not spread them out, you'd love to be a conscientious objector in that village, wouldn't you? Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> that's another story, isn't it? God, that's another story. Conscientious objectors were quite uh, famously uh, frowned upon in the northeast in the run to World War One, weren't they? We were very proud of our military service in that degree where... Conscientious objectors, people who wore the white feather, were, were very much persona non grata here it in the wouldn't be a good If you're going to be one, I'd, I'd rather have it somewhere like Trendy down south because, uh, again, financially, one of the poorest regions, we raised more in war bonds than Oxfordshire. We were, you know, we've always been that right. Anyway, <laughs> just well, love a scrap. I've got to Absolutely go for love a scrap. Slish because uh, I'm a man in his late 50s, uh, so we'll rumble on soon. But that wasn't bad considering we haven't done this for like two months. Aye, aye, aye. World War II, I think we're going to have, for me at least, a lot more personal well, things I coming up. Uh, I haven't finished World War One yet, but we'll have to see what <laughs> we're going to do. It's going to go on. We're, we're, <laughs> the armistice has not happened in this room. I mean, what is this, like an hour now? Yeah. We better get off. Yeah, we've only got off an hour to each episode. <laughs> right. It's good night from me. <laughs> Just quickly, before we uh, close off, again, uh, if you like this, you can hear some more bonus content on the Patreon page. Uh, how, how do I... How do I the Patreon is, is patreon.com slash feltnow. Uh, join the club. You get a membership card. Uh, you get a handshake and a password. And you get a bonus content from each individual episode from each individual podcast on there. You can see special sets that aren't available anywhere else from myself. And maybe, Mike, uh, some of your specials are on there as well. Yes. Yes, some of his comedy is on there as well. You can't say anywhere else. Gav's uh, got a special that he once upon a time, Gav Webster, once upon a time released on VHS that I absolutely adore. And you can't see that anywhere else except from the Felt Now Patreon. Uh, and on the Felt Now Patreon, regarding this episode, what we're going to do, I think is a good idea, Mickey, is I think like the gay Ted Gurkers, we should come up with different names for different battalions for like different regions of the Northeast. We like did the you- Pennywell Punjabis, the Rothbury Rajis. Oh dear me! Uh, well, we used to, we actually did that in the seventies. There was the the Stan Army from Lovely Hill, <laughs> and they terrified me. <laughs> is this me. how the Agro Boys came about? The yeah, Long yeah, Bent yeah. Agro Boys, the yeah, Hidden Agro Boys, the Stan Army, um, the, the Long Long Bent Agro Boys. They they were very well known. They I got confused with the Long Bent Agro Boys once. I'll tell you this on the extra, on the extra, <laughs> yeah, <we're- laughs> on the extra. I'll see you there. Sign up the Patreon to hear about how I got confused for the Long Agro Boys and where we'll create a bunch of uh, different regiments from the Northeast. She's a big lass in the bonny lass and she likes for me all. And the cow who has 
That was a Feltnout production. To find out more, visit feltnout.co.uk.